God, thanks so much for your word. Uh, for your glory, we gather, we, uh, we worship you in song. We, we want to worship you now as we study what you have to say in your scripture. Uh, lead us, God, to a life that's changed uh, because you've interacted us, with us this morning. Help us, especially as we get to the end of this, this portion of scripture, help us to re, be uh, ready for the persecution that is inevitably coming in everyone's life. Help us to handle it the way you want us to handle it, God, and teach us that this morning. As always, get me out of the way. Speak in my place. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Has Brad made a big enough fuss about the fact that you're not meeting next week at 9.30? Everybody knows that, right? Next week, this service will start at 9 o'clock, or if you're sleepy, you can come to the 11. But we only have two services next week, 9 and 11. Don't show up at 9.30. You're either going to be really late or really early. All right, here we go. Uh, just a quick uh, personal note. The Saunders have moved into the house that they've been working on for six months. Yeah, God, for that. Thank you. Very, very grateful for all of you. Uh, many of you have helped us in that process uh, has anybody moved though recently? How, how, isn't that crazy? Because you got to pack everything up in the one place while you're finishing the other place. In our case, we had to like rebuild the whole thing. And, and then you have to move all that stuff. You have to go back and clean the last place. And then you got to sort out all the stuff in the new place where it goes, right? So for this last week, we moved in Monday night and we just kind of been walking around piles in our house because that's, we just, we said, hey, just set it there, right? And we're trying really hard not to move things six times. Uh, but but it, that, that's ending up happening. We're just, oh, we want it there. Oh, maybe we want it there. Oh, maybe we should put it there. And it's just, after a while, it's just exhausting. Like, I'm, I'm walking around, I'm putting up blinds and, and uh, putting up curtain rods. Uh, I don't have anything to hang my toilet paper on right now. I have to put that stuff up, right? And it's just, it seems like this never-ending list of things. But there came a time, it was, I think it was Tuesday night, it was the fir- first night we all sat down uh, to have dinner in our house. And I sit at the head of the, our table, and, and we live on Gornto Lake, Gornto Lake Road, we live on Gornto Lake. And, and, and I can look through, uh, or down the, the, the length of my table through this huge window that Eleanor insisted we have in our kitchen. I'm so grateful you did. Uh, but I can look out that window over Gornto Lake, and it, it was at that moment that I was like, this was kind of worth it, right? You ever had those one of those moments? It was a lot of work, it was a lot of time and a lot of effort, but then you have that just like, you know, ha, ah, this was worth it, right? Well, that was short-lived because then I got up and had to keep working. Thursday, you know, uh, I, I took uh, my days off for Thursday and Friday, and so uh, Thursday I was working on the house. Friday I was up there, I was up on a ladder, you know, uh, pushing, uh, you know, cocking into all the cracks on the house that need to be painted, and, 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 uh, and I just looked, at that time I looked out over our backyard, which is still a moonscape. There's no grass in my yard because we had to get it all graded and stuff like this. And it's just, at that point in my, in my you know, life at this house, I was like, this is never going to be finished. Is anybody living in that house? Is anybody living in a house where like, there's, there's no way this is ever going to be done? Because I'm going to get this part done, and then this part's going to need to be done again. And then this part's going to ha- you know, fall apart, and then I'm like, I'm never going to finish. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's mixed reviews so far. Most, mostly very grateful, but still very daunting. And I, I, think, I tell you all that to let you know where we're at as a family, but also to let you know that this is kind of what we're going to be talking about as we talk about the early church. Because the early church had its move-in date. It's called Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the day that the disciples went up into this upper room and the Holy Spirit fell on them in such a way that a bunch of fishermen could speak languages they did not know. And they tumbled out into Jerusalem and they just started speaking all these foreign tongues and all these foreigners from those places gathered and like, what's going on with these guys? They're drunk. And Peter's like, hey, we're not drunk. It's not even noon. And uh, (laughs) we don't start drinking till 1. Now, uh, <laughs> he says, we're not drunk, and we're here to tell you a story. And, and he, he, Peter gets up, and he gives one of the greatest messages in all of Scripture. He explains the gospel of Jesus. And 3,000 people on that first day joined the church. How about that for a move-in day, right? 
I mean, that's, that's a pretty good start. And there had to be times. I mean, you read about the early church in Acts chapter 2, and it just seems like everything was growing great. They were, you know, they were, they were listening to the apostles teaching. They were praying together. They were breaking bread together. They were in each other's houses. They had everything in common. The, the people in Jerusalem loved them. It was, like, it was like they were sitting at the end of their table just being like, man, this was worth it. But then you get to chapter 3. Peter and the guys, they heal this guy who can't walk. And all the authorities there in Jerusalem throw him in jail. Hey, wait a minute. This wasn't on our, on our radar. We, we weren't planning on being imprisoned for this faith. I mean, everybody loves us. You go to the next chapter. Guess what happens there? They get thrown in jail again. God gets them out of jail. Just opens the door. They walk out. They start preaching again. But, but the, the, the officials come to them and say, you've got to stop preaching this gospel. Remember what they said? Hey, man. You decide what you've got to do, but we've got to follow God. We, get, we don't follow man. He told us to preach the gospel. Jesus, his son, told us. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the utmost parts of the earth. That's what we're doing. So do your worst, but this is what we're doing. Well, what we're going to discover this, this summer is their worst. The men uh, of the Jewish faith in, in Jerusalem make it really hard on this, this, this new group of people called the Christians. And there had to be times when they kind of looked out and said, man, this thing's never going to be done. I mean, it's always going to be something. I mean, all of these apostles, the original uh, 11, Judas died uh, before uh, these other guys did, but uh, the original, they all die a martyr's death. They all die for the cause. And they had to have moments where they looked around and being like, man, was this worth it? Because this thing's never going to be done. Here we are 2,000 later, and guess what? It's still not done. We're Acts 29. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We're, we're, we're that next chapter in the story of, of Jesus and his mission moving forward in the world. We're, we're doing our part here in Brandon, Florida. 33510, right? Or whatever. And we're just, we're, we're just carrying on what was started 2,000 years ago. And there's got to be times in your life, because I know there are mine, where you sit down as a Christian and you're like, oh man, this was all worth it. Because you look out at all the blessings that God has given you, and you're like, oh, I mean, it's been hard sometimes, but it was worth it. And then there's got to be times, if you're like me, you just look around and you're like, man, this is never going to be done. And this is hard. But this summer, we're going to look at these guys, these few good men, and we're going to try to learn from them. And they're persevering, and then they're pushing through in the pursuit of God's mission so that we can continue doing that ourselves. Like I said, 66 verses. We're going to meet a guy named Stephen. Everybody say Stephen. Stephen's our dude today, okay? And we're going to learn from his story. Here we go. Stephen comes up. I'm not going to read these verses. In fact, I'm not going to read all 67 verses for the sake of time. It'll still take a while. <clears throat> but Stephen, basically, his story starts in Acts chapter 6, uh, where uh, the, the apostles are starting to be burdened. There, there's just so much going on. There's so many people joining the church. They just can't do it all anymore. And so the first reorg in the church happens. And all the apostles turn to each other and says, hey, man, we're, we're here about preaching and teaching and leading. We need another layer of leadership. So they create this role called deacon. And the deacons were these seven guys. This original group were seven guys who were basically called in for the, for the express purpose of taking care of widows who were being left, you know, uh, to fall through the cracks. Uh, and so this guy named Stephen and another guy named Philip, we're going to study him later this summer. And then five other guys were chosen by the apostles to take on the role of deacon. So Stephen comes up. Uh, in the scriptures around that time as a deacon. And it says in verse 8, as we go on with the story of Stephen, that Stephen uh, was full of grace and power. There's a killer combo right there, right? I mean, b- both are good, but both together, that's, that's like change agent stuff. 
Now, I, I, I preach this all the time. Everybody in here should be a gracious person. We should have the character of the Christ who is in us, and Christ was full of grace. <clears throat> but when you combine grace and you combine uh, some ability, some power, some, some get-it-doneness, right? Well, then some amazing thing can, things can happen for the good of God and his people, right? Because uh, anybody know someone who has power and doesn't have grace? Kind of, you know, the wrecking ball, right? They can make a mess. Go through history. Power in ungracious hands, evil. But power in gracious hands, you combine those two things, well, that, that's what we're going for. We're going for those two things, God's power and God's grace through us. So Stephen was, Stephen was full of both, and he was nailing it, and he was doing great wonders and signs. He doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about those things, but we can guess healings, and we can guess you know, uh, a lot of the things that were prevalent in that day and age as the gospel of Jesus Christ was being proven by the signs of God through his apostles and through and Stephen in this case. Verse 9, it says this, And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of, the, uh, of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. Okay, real quick, the, 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 the synagogue of the freedmen was kind of like this church of a bunch of guys who were descendants of, of Jews who were taken from Israel in different uh, captivity times, like Babylon came in and took over Israel in 586 B.C., and so they took a bunch of, well, almost all of the Jews uh, off to Babylon and, and made them slaves. Uh, at different times, the Romans would come in and, and, and indenture you know, different uh, you know, populations of the Jewish uh, culture, and they would take them back to their outposts, Rome and all these places, and, uh, and they would become slaves there, and then eventually they would win their freedom through either the emancipation of their owners or through somehow paying off the debts, but they would become freedmen. Are you with me? And these men who were in this actual synagogue had that in common. Like if you've got a bunch of group of friends that you have because you go to the same little league field every weekend, you might belong to the church of the little league, you know, Brandon North, whatever. Okay, that's what these guys are. They have this unique characteristic in common, and they've formed their synagogue around that lineage or that history. Well, that, that's what the freedman is. But here's, here's all you need to know. They were, they were kind of fussed out at Stephen. As good, faithful Jewish men, they were like, whoa, 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 what's all this carpenter from Nazareth stuff? I mean, nice tricks over there. Way to heal whoever you just healed. But, but what's all this talk that you're saying about, you know, there's a new sheriff in town, that we shouldn't be following all the old Jewish ways. We should be following this, this new way, this Jesus well, so they, they, they kind of struck up some conversations. Here's how it happened. Verse 10, uh, these, these synagogue of the freedmen guys, uh, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Uh, just a quick lesson. If God's behind it, ain't going to fail. All right? If God is working through somebody and his truth is flowing through someone, there's no argument against it. In fact, some of you are Christians right now because uh, you got in, you know, in, in the space with someone who's preaching the gospel or explaining the gospel to you, and you kept coming with, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And they had answers for it, and you're like, well, you got me. And now you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Now, that wasn't because that person was really smart. That's because the Holy Spirit and his wisdom was flowing through that person to the point where you were able to be you know, convinced of, of, of your following Jesus. So Stephen's doing this, and it's, it's not winning these freedmen over. It's making them mad. They can't win any of their arguments. They're not, they're, not, they're not scoring points with the judges here. So what do they do? They cheat. <laughs> so they secretly instigated men who said, hey, uh, 
We have heard this guy Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses, who was the purveyor of God's law and the representative of God's law, and of God himself. Uh, and verse 12. And, and they stirred at the people and the elders and the scribes. Uh, that would be the, the Sanhedrin. It was a group of uh, governors that basically ran uh, Jerusalem and the Jews there. Uh, and, and they said, uh, they came upon him, uh, Stephen, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council, the Sanhedrin, verse 13. And they set up false witnesses. I don't know if it was the same guy who was like, you know, spreading the rumors, but they got these two false witnesses, which was required by Jewish law. And these, these false witnesses, at least two of them, said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. A little hyperbolic there. Okay, he probably says other things. But they're, they're basically saying, listen, we've got a problem with this guy. He, what, what are the two things? He, speak his words, he speaks words against this holy, holy place and against the law. What, what was the holy place? Starts with T, rhymes with Bemple. Temple, good. Church, church is rocking now. Yeah, the temple. You were speaking words against the temple. They said you were, you, you, and that was a big deal for the Jews. If you if you said that the temple, you know, the temple wasn't important, or there was something more important than the temple, that was, that was Jews would get fussed out at that back then. And these guys were. He said they were that, that, that uh, these false witnesses were saying Stephen's also speaking against the law. Because he was reinterpreting the things that were found there. Actually, what he was reinterpreting, he was interpreting correctly <laughs> the things that were found in the Old Testament that these guys refused to see. But they saw it as, you know, contradicting uh, the truths and traditions of the Jewish faith. He goes on and he says this, uh, these accusers say, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and he will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. He's, he's this radical. He's a terrorist. He's going to blow up our temple. And he's going to make everything flip on its head in our Jewish faith. Now they were probably taking that from when Jesus said, uh, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Remember when Jesus said that? Was he talking about the literal temple? No, he was talking about himself. He says, destroy me and, and in three days I'll raise up. He died on the cross. Three days later he rose from the grave. It's pretty central to our faith, right? But he wasn't talking about the temple, but they took that out of context, some other things out of context. And they said, well, you know, this guy, Jesus, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a rebel. He's a terrorist, and he's here to destroy Judaism. Now, the whole time they're saying this, look what it says about Stephen. Gazing at him, as they looked at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He had a little baby face, right? We just want to squeeze it, right? Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means at all. In fact, when you read face of an angel in the Bible, don't think cute. Think like glowing. Like there's this thing called the Shekinah glory of God. And when God's glory rests on someone, like, like Moses. Let's go back to Moses. Moses was this guy who goes up on a hill, Mount Sinai, hangs out with God for about 40 days, comes down with these tablets that have been written on by God's finger. And on, on these tablets are the Ten Commandments, if you've heard of those. And God, through Moses, delivers the Ten Commandments to Israel to the foundation of all the law. And when he gets there, though, a little something has happened with Moses. He's glowing. Okay? His face is glowing so much that people are kind of freaking out. In fact, they make him wear a veil. So just let him talk to Moses. Right? I don't know where you put the batteries on this guy, but you know, he's starting to kind of freak me out. So here's, here's Stephen. And what's, what are the accusations? He's blaspheming the temple. He's blaspheming the law. And as he sits there as the accused, his face starts to glow like Moses, who was the recipient of God's law. 
Would, would this have been a cue for maybe the Jews who were accusing him that maybe God was behind Stephen and his message? You'd think that maybe they'd do one plus one and equal two, right? But all Luke does is just say, hey, listen, God even gave them a sign in that Stephen's face was glowing like Moses was when he got the law, and they still didn't see the, the relationship. The high priest comes to him and says, hey, this true? All these claims, are they true? So Stephen starts his defense. Now, remember that his accusations, or the, the charges brought against him, is that he was busting on the temple, and he was busting on the law. All right? So what you're going to read, especially if you're new to the Bible, congratulations! We're reading a lot of your Old Testament in this testimony that Stephen gives for himself. You're going you're to get like, I don't know, the first three books of the Bible almost in their entirety summarized, and then lots of even later in the Bible in the Old Testament as part of Stephen's defense. Here it comes, ready? Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father who? He was the first Jew, right? The one who started it all, the father Abraham, who lived where? Mesopotamia. Who remembers Western civilization? Anybody remember Western civilization in school? You know, the, the birthplace of humanity and all that stuff? They think it was over there in Mesopotamia, right? Uh, the Bible describes Mesopotamia, and actually the actual place that, uh, that Abraham lived, as a place called Ur. Everybody say Ur. This is, this is what many of us use when we're texting now, because we can't be bothered to write your, Y-O-U-R. We write Ur. But it's actually this ancient place where Abraham was from. And so God comes to this guy, his name's Abraham, Abram at the time, and he says, Abram, you live over here in Ur. Anybody know where Ur is? It's right where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers basically connect, okay, right in that region. Modern-day Iraq, uh, a couple, well, at least a 1,000 miles away from Israel. Keep that in mind. In fact, if I, if I had longer stage, I'd put it way over there just so we could kind of get the, uh, you know, scale. But he's over here in Ur. Now let's keep reading. He comes to him in Ur uh, before he lived in Haran, which is another place that is not in Israel. Uh, keep going. And he said to him, go out from your land to Abraham and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Remember that part of the story? Hey, Abraham, we're moving. Trust me. I'm going to show you where we're going, but just pick up the poles and your tents and let's go. Uh, so then he went out of the land of the Chaldeans, which is where Ur is, and he lived in Haran. And his father died. And God removed him, Abraham's father, from there into this land in which you are now living. So Stephen says to everybody who's accusing him, so Abraham finally landed. Back then it was called Cana, the land of Canaan, all right? And Abraham landed there. Yet, Stephen says, God gave Abraham no inheritance in this land, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it uh, to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Okay, so, so here's what Stephen's saying. Now listen. God went to Mesopotamia, Ur, he gets Abraham, moves him all the way around, starts in Haran, but he gets finally to, well, Israel. Let's say Israel's right here. And he finally gets to Israel, but is, is Israel Israel at the time that Abraham gets there? No. Abraham's just kind of this Bedouin. He's kind of this nomad. He's just wandering around, sets up camp, and he's living in this place, uh, uh, you know, with, with threats all around him. But God says, hey, no, don't worry about it. This, this land, I'm going to give it to you. I promised it to you. Remember, that's Genesis chapter 12. I told you I was going to move you to this place. I was going to use you and your descendants to bless the whole world. And it's yours, man. It's just not going to be yours while you're alive. It's going to be given to your descendants, even though you don't have a son. Anybody remember the story of Abraham? How old was he when he finally had his son with his wife? A hundred years old. What's up, fellas? Yeah. 
100 years old, Abraham finally sires a child with his 98-year-old wife. But he gets all these promises from God. He doesn't have any kids. He's got to be looking at God being like, seriously, you're going to give this land to my descendants. How about a descendant? How about just one? And this is a good place for us to kind of do a sermon sidebar and, and for me to tell this to you so that you know your Bibles. Your Bibles are a faith story. The whole way through, it's a faith story. God comes to man. Once man blows it in Genesis chapter 3 and sin enters the world, God comes to man and he says, okay, choose me or choose me not. Have faith in me or have faith in me not. I'm going to do some stuff, but I'm not going to force you to do it. And I'm not going to make it easy while you do it. You're going to have to trust me step by step, faith by faith, so that you can realize my plan for your lives. Is he still doing that in our lives today? Better believe it. So when people come to you and say, well, I don't get this whole Christian thing. I want to be able to dot my I's and cross my T's, and I want everything out there. You just got to look at him and say, hey, dude, that's not how this works. By faith, we receive Christ. By faith, we believe that God is real, his son is Jesus, that he's gone to prepare for a place for us, and by faith, we believe we're going there someday. Are you with me? I mean, I don't have a signed contract. Anybody got one of those? If you got one, fax it to me. I'd like to have a copy. But I do this by faith. Your Bibles are a faith story. Back to the testimony of Stephen. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. So Stephen's transitioning from the Abraham story. He says, listen, God told Abraham, hey, look, your descendants are going to own this land, but it's not going to be for a while. In fact, they're going to have to be enslaved by another nation for 400 years. Who knows their Bible? Who was that? What nation? Egypt. Bonus round. Way to go, buddy. All right. So let's go on to the story of Egypt. Here we go. The patriarchs. Now we've gotten a couple layers past Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. They became the twelve tribes of Israel. And they're called the patriarchs. So now we're entering the story of Joseph. It's in Genesis 37. If you'd like to follow along, here we go. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Where did they sell him into? Egypt. Out, uh, but. That's not a out, that's a but. But God was with him. So, just so we're clear, story continues. And in what nation is it going to continue? Egypt. Which is all the way over here, by the way, if you're looking at the uh, Middle East. Ur of the Chaldees, Tigris and Euphrates River, a couple thousand miles or at least a thousand miles to the east of Israel. Egypt, across the Red Sea, a thousand miles to the west of Israel. And where is God? Can you guys see that? There it is. Where is God continuing his story? Nowhere near Israel. Just keep that in mind. Let's keep reading. God was with him. He rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and he gave him favor and wisdom before a guy named Pharaoh. Pretty important dude in the country. Uh, He was the king of Egypt, uh, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout uh, Egypt and Canaan, where uh, Abraham's grandson Jacob, Joseph's dad, was hanging out. And a great affliction came, and his fathers, uh, our fathers, the patriarchs, could find no food. They were going to die. The, the seed of Abraham, except for Joseph, who was living in Egypt, was going to cease to exist. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers uh, on their first visit. 
And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, verse 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So all of the descendants of Abraham uh, that were descendants of Jacob came to live in Egypt. But uh, as the time of the promise drew near, that promise of the uh, 400 years ending, uh, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So 400 years goes by, uh, the Jews, well, they multiplied. There was lots more of them. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race. All the Jews in, in the company of, of Stephen would be like, yep, we know that story. You're starting in the book of Exodus chapter 1, right? So they, they listen, this, this nation of Egypt, 400 years after the fact of Joseph and his family residing there, uh, is now going to basically uh, shrewdly deal with our race and force our fathers to expose their infants, the firstborn son, uh, at the time of the birth of this guy Moses, the firstborn son of every Jewish family had to be put to death. They were, and this is an unfortunate way of saying it, but they were culling the herd. They were getting rid of some of the Jews, so there weren't so many of them, they weren't a threat to the Egyptians. Keep going, verse 19. At this time, a guy named Moses was born. Now we're moving from Joseph to Moses in Stephen's defense. And he was beautiful in God's sight. When you read that, again, he's not talking about, oh, he's so cute. He's talking about the fact that Moses was set apart by God at birth for the mission that he was about to accomplish. Now, don't think that Moses is special and you're not. God has designed everybody with a mission. You may not have been put in a basket and set on the Nile, but God has given you a mission in your life. It could be that your mission is to make sure that your husband or your wife is, t- is, is, is loved and nurtured, that your kids grow up to follow Jesus, that, that someone in your path, you're going to be their missionary. Everybody's got a mission in life, right? But Moses' mission, it was a pretty big one. It made the Bible. It was a big deal. And that's why God's, uh, he, he was beautiful in God's sight. He was, he was brought up for three months in, in the Pharaoh's house, or before he got to the Pharaoh's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, and he brought him uh, in, 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 as her own son. Uh, verse 22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words like 10, 15 years ago. They did a movie on this, you know, the Prince of Egypt. Everybody seen it? Good. And, uh, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Did I just read that? Yeah, let's keep going. And when he was 40 years old, Stephen's going to break Moses' life up into 40s. 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. When he was 40 years old, it came into his he- a heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Now, how did Moses, you know, from birth know that he was an Israelite? Well, uh, he, on the eighth day of his life, was circumcised, just like every other good Israeli uh, or Jewish boy. Uh, No, he wasn't. I just corrected myself, and I'm going to continue going. And seeing one of them being wronged, so he knew he was a Jew somehow, but I'll I'll tell you next week. Seeing himself, the circumcision, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Happens. Seeing one of them be wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down. Remember that story? So, so Moses decides, basically here's what you need to know. Moses decides that he's going to go out and he's going to start doing things for the nation of Israel. The first thing he decides to do is he's going to step in where a, an Egyptian slave uh, owner was just beaten on this Israel, uh, Israelite slave. And so he steps in and what's he end up doing? He kills the slave owner. And he thinks like, Done. I'm the defender of the Jews. Let's see how that turns out. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But lo and behold, they did not understand that. Now, real real quick, let me pause here. This is a good time for us to have another sermon sidebar and just talk about the fact that if you're going to do something for God, make sure God's behind it. Isn't that true? Like, how many people have had all these great intentions of doing something nice for somebody and the other person didn't want it and it turned out to be something that divided them instead of bringing them closer together? Well, I want to do this special party for you. It's going to be awesome. I don't want a party. No, it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And, and you aren't listening. Don't do a party for me. No, it's going to be great. If you do a party for me, we are no longer friends. Oh, it's going to be great. It'll be awesome. Right? And we get it so ingrained in our head that this is what I've got to do. It's how I'm going to make things better in the world. And we go off and do it because God's not behind it. It doesn't produce good. It produces harm. Right? So were Moses' intentions good? Sure. He wants to do something for the nation of Israel. He wants to be a defender of his people. Did he go about it the wrong way? Yes. So be careful, little Christians, what you do. If God's not behind it, slow your roll. On the following day, he appeared to them, uh, the Jews, as they were quarreling and and tried to reconcile them, saying, hey, guys, fellas, you're brothers. Why, Why do you do wrong to each other? Let's all be friends. And he goes on and it says this, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who made you the boss of me? You're not the boss of me. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Whoa, someone posted something on Facebook. This is not. Someone found out that Moses had done this deed. I'm sure the authorities were trying to figure out who killed this slave trader, you know, in this region of the city. Well, it had traveled through that this Jew, apparently, who had been saved by Moses, told all the other Jews, and all the Jews knew it was that prince, that guy who lives in the palace, who's one of us. He's the one who killed. Moses knows that that is a punishable offense in Egypt, and so what's he decide to do? He's out of here. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of where? Midian. Well, where's Midian? Midian is this place uh, that is basically now modern-day Saudi Arabia and, and South Jordan. It's a region. I've got to put Ur further over here. It's a region to the east of Israel <coughs> where Moses runs to. He's just going to live in the wilderness out there. So he comes from Egypt, crosses over those two fingers of the Red Sea, if you've ever seen those, crosses over those, and he gets into past the Sinai Peninsula into uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia and Jordan. And he just hangs out there. Is that in Israel? Just so you know, it is not. Remember that for Stephen's point. He goes there and he has two sons. And now when he was 40 years of pastors, the next 40, uh, an angel appeared to him in the, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of a fire in a bush. Uh, and, and when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to, to, to look, the, there came a voice of the Lord. Verse 32. And I am the, it says this, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. He's freaking out. This is what God says to him through the bushes. The Lord said to him, take off those sandals. Shoes off, brother. For the place where you are standing is what? Holy ground. This place in a, in a, in a land called Midian, not Israel, 
in this foreign place outside of the boundaries of what God would eventually give to Israel. That was holy ground. If you're not picking up what Stephen's putting down, I'm going to skip to the, uh, skip to the end here. What did they say that he was doing? He was blaspheming the what? The temple. And why were they saying this? Because the Jews of that time believed that the temple was the only place where God resided. And that if you, listen, if you spoke against the temple, it was like speaking against God, because that's where he hung out. He was in the Holy of Holies. And if you wanted to get to God, you've got to go through all the sacrifices on the outer courts. But then once a year, Yom Kippur, the high priest goes in, and we have a face-to-face with God. We make that sacrifice, but that's where God stays. And what Stephen says to his friends that, you know, in, the, in his Jewish faith is like, you don't even believe that. I mean, you believe that, but that's not what you've been taught. Because throughout our history, from Abraham to Joseph to Moses, God has spoken in, in, in amazing ways. He's pieced together our story in places that were never within the boundaries of Israel, let alone in the courts of a temple. He says this whole blasphemy against the temple thing is a non-starter. It's not even one of God's rules. It's a tradition that you guys made up. Now, is the temple important? He's going to talk about that. Sure, the temple's important. But is it the only place that God resides? No. That's his defense against their claim. Let's keep reading. Keep going. I'm going to keep going. Keep going. Let's keep going. I'll go back to the last one. Go back to the last one. There we go, this one. So he's going to get done talking about Moses here, and I just want to give you this one last thing. We're in verse 37. If you're following along in your own books or iPads or phones. He says this. This is the Moses. This same Moses who heard from the bush in Midian. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, those that he led during the exodus out of, out of Egypt, he says, listen, man, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is basically, I've got to get the temple out of the way here. This is Moses in his lifetime speaking to the Israelites during the period when the law was coming about. When the law was coming, the law comes in Exodus 20. But in Exodus 18, Moses says to the, to the Israelites, hey, listen, just so you know, I know God used me to get you out of Egypt. We're going to hang out. He's promised us the promised land. We're going to head in that direction. It's going to take us 40 years. He didn't know that at the time, but it's going to take us a while. But I want you to know that I'm not the end-all, be-all. That there is another one coming from amongst our people who is going, and he didn't say the words exactly, but he's going to be our Messiah. So Stephen stands on his, on his testimonial block, and he says, you guys, you say that I'm blaspheming the temple. You say that I'm blaspheming the scriptures. Your scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, point to the guy I'm preaching. This Jesus that I'm so fussed out over. Moses talked about him. You guys are so strong on Moses. Moses told you he was coming. And you didn't even see it. He talks a little bit in there in the next few verses about the rebellion of Israel. Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Remember that story? What were the children of Israel doing at the bottom? I mean, they waited for a while, but then what'd they do? Time's up. Moses hasn't come back with God's word for us, so we're going to start worshiping a cow. Anybody remember that story? If, you don't, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the children of Israel are waiting for the Ten Commandments, what would become the Ten Commandments, to come down from Moses or from God through Moses, 
and, and in, their, in their whatever, in their impatience, they decided, you know, we're going back to Egypt. We're going to start worshiping idols. And so they took all their jewelry that everybody had been throwing at them as they were leaving Egypt, you know, because all the Egyptians were so glad to see the uh, Israelites leave Egypt. Anyway, all the plagues. But they took all that jewelry and they melted it down and they fashioned for themselves a cow. And they started dancing around the cow. I don't know if they mooed. I have no idea what they did. But they worshiped this cow. And the first time Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, he finds the children of Israel doing what they'd always done. Rebel against the one true God and worship false gods. (laughs) And why were they doing it? Just so we're clear. This is part of Stephen's defense. They were doing it because it was their tradition. For 400 years, they'd worshiped the gods of Egypt. Moses comes from out of the woods, throws his stick down, becomes a snake, does all these plagues, and they're starting to kind of, okay, well, we crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. That was pretty cool. They're starting to figure out that there's this other God, this new God. But in their haste or in their impatience, they, they just go back to what they knew. And what they knew was their tradition, their old gods. You see the parallels between what's happening in Stephen's time? All the Jews were holding on to their old impressions of God and the way that he worked. It's the law. It's the temple. There's no way that God would work through a carpenter from Nazareth. We're sticking with our old gods, our traditions. It's pretty pretty cunning the way Stephen sets up his argument, right? Verse 40, I think 43 or 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Okay, a tent. What's this tent thing? The dwelling place of God in the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, all the way leading up to Joshua and and Judges and those those books later in your Old Testament, uh, is that he he dwelt in this tent. It was called the tabernacle. Everybody say tabernacle. And the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, resided in this tabernacle. The whole nation of Israel would camp around this big tent called the tabernacle every time they picked up and moved around in the wilderness for those 40 years between Egypt and the promised land uh, conquering. Uh, So this tabernacle became the center of their worship. And so Stephen says, let's talk temple. If you want to talk temple, let's talk temple. It started as a tent. Everybody agree? Yep. Well, let's talk about it some more. Verse 46. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place, a more permanent one, for, for the God of Jacob. Verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a, a temple. He's, he's not saying anything that these Jews don't know. He's just basically reading the, the history books of the Old Testament. This is how it went down. Everybody agree? Yeah, yeah, we agree with you. But he says, but you didn't read Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who said this, verse 48. Yet the Most High, this is what the prophet Isaiah said, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, verse 49, heaven is my throne. This is what God says of himself. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? (laughs) Did not my hand make all these things? Oh, sweet. So you guys are going to build me a house and think that i got to stay there. The house can't hold me. I mean, listen, I appreciate you guys having a location to come make your sacrifices. You can see, like, we have churches, right? You're sitting in one, if you didn't know. Welcome. Doesn't look like a lot of the churches you grew up going to, but it's a church nonetheless. But here's the deal. I've talked to you about this before. How many times have you heard someone say, you can't do that in church? 
Like there's something, there's some force field that you pass through when you come through the doors of this place, and there's like an extra level of holiness expected because you're all of a sudden in a church. Okay, you're never in a church. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the church. And wherever you go, it is church. And so you live the way you live for God as the church, not because you're in a place called the church. Is everybody with me? And so Stephen started this argument a long time ago. The Jews are like, dude, it's not the temple. Because no, no temple can hold the, the immensity of our omnipresent and omniscient and omnip, not, yeah, omnipotent God. He is everywhere. He knows everything. He can do anything. There's no house that's going to hold him. Why are you making a fuss about the bricks? Our God is everywhere. And anywhere he is, you take your shoes off and worship. Because where he is, he is to be worshipped. Now things change. Stephen's been very kind and patient. He's explained all of the history of Israel. But now he's going to get nasty. Here is what he says. He says, you stiff-necked people. (laughs) All right. Temperature change in the room. He calls them a bunch of stiff necks. By the way, this is what all the prophets said of the Israelites throughout the entire Old Testament. Go back and read them. Stiff necked people, hearts as hard as flint, right? He says, You want this, this? Oh, this was fighting words. You, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Never tell a Jew that they're uncircumcised. That is, I mean, that is like, you're telling me I'm not a Jew. He says, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Answer? Well, they, they pretty much messed with all of them. He says, and they killed some of those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Whom, by the way, you have now in this day and age betrayed, because the righteous one came, see, Jesus of Nazareth, and murdered. Verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels, oh, here we go, and did not keep it. <laughs> he flipped the script. Did you see what he just did? You're telling me I'm a lawbreaker. You're the lawbreakers. Everybody switch seats. All you guys come down here. You can sit in the, you know, in the accused seats, and I'm going to go up there on the judge's seat, and we're going we're to set this straight. Because in this whole room, in this whole Sanhedrin, the only one that's really following the law, the only one that really understands what God said in his scriptures is yours truly. The rest of you are stiff-necked, uncircumcised lawbreakers. This is not going to end well. <laughs> and it doesn't. And I'm out of time, so I'm just going to summarize what happens next. Stephen dies. Like, like within the hour, he's gone. Because here's what happened. These guys, it says they actually grinded their teeth. I mean, they went... Not just like angry mad. They went mad mad. They went crazy, murderous, mob mad. And they put their hands on Stephen. And they drug him outside the city walls. And they threw rocks at him. Big rocks. Cinder block sized rocks. They threw rocks at his head and at his body until he died. First martyr. Stephen dies for his faith. He says three things. I'm going to leave them with you real fast. Three things before he dies. The first thing is when they're in the courtroom. These guys are coming to put their hands on him, and Stephen actually says this. He says, oh, I see, I see the throne room of God. He's having a vision. He's having an epiphany in the middle 
of his death. He's, he's about to be taken outside and, and killed. He's having a vision of God. He says, I see the throne room of God. I see God the Father, and I see Jesus sitting, or excuse me, standing next to him. Now, this is really interesting because in the rest of Scripture, almost every time that the throne room is pictured, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. In fact, it tells us, if you're a Christian, that you sit at the right hand of the Father with Christ. All right? Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That's where we are. And we're sitting on the throne next to our Father. Okay? But Stephen has this vision, and there's Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? He's not sitting. He's standing up. You know why I think he's standing up? Because he's, he's ready to take Stephen home. Come on, Steve. I know this man's going to end really bad, but you've been faithful to me to the end. Come on. As you go through your persecutions in life, could be, listen, I don't know what's going to happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years in our country. Things are trending. Are you with me? As you go through the persecutions in your life, first thing you do, fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't look at the persecutors or the persecutions. You focus on the one that you have put your faith in. You keep your eyes on Jesus. When Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, that lake, remember that, him and Jesus just dancing on the waves? He was having a great time until when? Until he stopped looking at Jesus and started looking at the storm. If you're going to follow Jesus, listen, it's going to get hard. Look at me. Look at me. Lean in. It's going to be hard. We've all moved in, but there's so much work left to do. And some days it just feels like this is never going to be done. We're just, let's just quit. It's just too hard. No. On those days, fix your eyes on Jesus. You know the second thing that Stephen said? Stephen said this. He says, as, as the rocks are raining down on him, he says this. It's another thing that Jesus said on the cross. He said, Father, receive my spirit. Receive. Jesus, receive my spirit. It's like what Jesus said on the cross. Father, I commend to you my spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, I'm ready to die. I'll give my life for you. It's apparently, uh, you know, the way this is working out, I'm not walking away from this. So receive me. Here's all you need to know about that. As Christians, here's our deal. We want to live for Jesus with our lives and in our death. Like no breaks. No hiccups. Just... I'm, I'm for Jesus. If it costs me my life, I'm for Jesus. Receive my spirit. The last thing Stephen said is so amazing to me, and I just want to leave you with this. The last thing Stephen says, the, the rocks are raining down. And the last thing he says before he breathes his last is, Father, forgive these men their sins. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say, because some of you are like, oh, we read so many verses this morning, Midian, Ur, I don't even know what he was talking about. If you don't hear anything else that I say, hear this. The last thing that Stephen said before he died in the midst of this incredible persecution that ultimately culminates in his death, he says, Father, forgive these men. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does anybody pick up kind of a theme of forgiveness in this Christian deal? Does everybody understand how important that is? I mean, for us personally, we need to be forgiven of our sins so that we can even be connected to God, right? Everybody gets that? But for us to be forgivers. What did Jesus teach his disciples when he taught them to pray? Our Father who is art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as heaven. Give us the day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Am I, am I messing it up? I'm going too fast. What is one is it? Forgive us our sins. That's where I was trying to get. Forgive us our trespasses is another way. As we what? As we forgive those who trespass against us. What? Why is that in the prayer? Here's why it's in the prayer. Real simple. Go home, meditate on this, deal with it, think about it, swallow it, chew it, whatever you got to do. 
God wants us to be people who forgive. He's forgiven us much. He wants us to forgive much. Stephen's about to die. He says, forgive these guys. Why? Because if you, listen, persecution's coming. It's, this life's going to be hard. But if you are an unforgiving person, that hard stuff is going to be exponentially more difficult. Because it's hard enough without you getting bitter, angry, uh, discouraged, enraged, whatever those things are. It, but listen, if you face the persecution and the people who persecute you and you say to them, I forgive you. Forgiveness isn't for you. Excuse me. Forgiveness isn't for them. It's for who? It's for you. So that you aren't burdened by the compound interest of sin. So Stephen says, forgive them. Eyes on Jesus. Life and death for him. Forgiving those who persecute you. That's the Christian life. Let's go home. Amen? God, thanks for your word. Use it in our lives. Glorify your name through us. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. Next week you'll be here at 9 o'clock. See you then. God bless you as you go.